Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're talking about Shadow and Bone Season 2 and all the great questions it raised with returning guest Becky Allen. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm your host, Matthew. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, as I said, I'm joined by Becky Allen. Becky is someone who I first met through WISCON, which is a, a great com- uh, collection of uh, people who love media and love to look at it, especially through a feminist and, and kind of just uh, interesting lenses. And uh, Becky and I, Becky's been a top... Uh, Becky has been a returning guest on a number of topics, many Star Wars related, but also Shadow and Bone. And so now that season two has finished, I knew I wanted to get Becky back. So, Becky, if you want to introduce yourself and uh, say hello. Hi, um, I'm Becky Allen. I use both they and she pronouns. Either is fine. Um, I am uh, a YA author who who, I've written some YA fantasy. Uh, I have read a fair amount of YA fantasy and like Anybody else who's read YA fantasy in the last 10 or so years, I love um, the Grishaverse books that Shadow and Bone are based on. Um, They are amongst my very favorites, particularly the Crows books, but I also enjoy the Alina and Nikolai books as well. And yeah, I'm really excited to to revisit the show uh, and talk about it with you. And I said this when we were uh, discussing an email, but I promise to harp on the books slightly less this time than, than I <laughs> did uh, last time because I have not just reread all of them, which I had last time. Um, but yeah, I'm really I'm really excited. I think there's a lot to talk about, and I really enjoyed the show. Awesome. Well, let's just start there. So, and I will just say, obviously, huge spoiler warnings. Uh, we're going to spoil everything that's in season two of the TV show. We're going to also, therefore, talk about how the books portray those same events. Uh, in cases where the books are, you know, a little bit different, we may get into that, where they're notably different and they're sort of major plot points that may come up in later se- seasons, because it's pretty clear that this is drawing from the books, but not in any particular order, we're going to avoid spoiling that. So if you've seen the show but not read the books, we're hopefully not going to spoil you for anything yet, um, but just kind of putting that warning out there. And of course, you can always hit pause, watch the show, and then come back. So... Rebecca, let me just kind of start there. Give me your overall thoughts on the show. It sounds like you really liked it. Uh, what do you like about the show? What what is kind of feeling on it? Um, I liked it. I love all. I love all of the characters. They're all my favorites, um, except that uh, probably. This season, Tamara and Tolia, who are are new in this season, um, are my very Mm -hmm. favorites. Um, I don't know that we have a lot to talk about with them, uh, but they are great. They are very fun and funny, and I really enjoyed them. They Um, are – if you're like me and you remember characters but you don't remember names, they are the shoe brother and sister who are with the uh, Dread Air Pirate Roberts – I'm sorry, (laughs) Stromhund, um, and who then become – and he's flirting a little bit with Alina, and she develops a relationship with one of the other. Um, uh, Grisha, who's on the ship. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's very it's very nice to have um, Tamara, who is queer. She's uh, a little bit on the butch side for TV, which does not show butch female characters very often. Um, mm-hmm. So that was something I really enjoyed. And she does have it's a very very minor thread, but she does get to have a, a nice little romance with one of the um, other Grisha, which I really liked. And I just thought Tolia was really funny. Yeah, he's. They're just. They're both charming. And I think that was one thing we talked about some with season one was that, and certainly there was some 
overall discussion about season one was that one of the concerns was that you had a character who was, uh, you know, it, all of this is in a fantasy nation, but it's pretty clear that uh, Ravnica is a, in a way that a lot of time fantasy is Great Britain to some extent, and that often you have a stand-in for other related countries. Ravnica is basically Russia. Um, they even ref, you know, the, the, they call the the ruler the czar, and the czarovich is the prince, and um, Shu is China. And mm-hmm. there had been some conversation about that some of the, the the representation of Alina as someone from China, and some of the racism against her was not the best kind of Asian representation and the like. And so I did think like having those two characters as their own characters, um, really being somewhat developed, spending some time in Shu itself, um, we was, def- was definitely a step up. Although I can, there were a couple of stereotypes that played into that I can understand some critique of, but we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed those. Um, I will say it's not to talk about the books too much, but I will say they made a lot of different choices with Alina and Mal in the show that they did in the books. And I pretty much universally thought they were good. Um, I prefer Mal in the show to Mal in the books, uh, where he is kind of a sexy lamp. He doesn't really have much interiority or um, much mm-hmm. going for him besides being the boy that Alina loves. And I'm I'm okay with that. I think that's a perfectly serviceable thing for him to be in the books. But I yeah. think they made some very different choices in the show, which made him a more interesting character. Yeah, definitely. Well, and let's actually use that to dive right into one of the things I wanted to talk about, because we, we have kind of a list of things that we'll probably bounce around a little bit. But you know, and starting at the end, a lot of this show, you know, season one, there was kind of a love triangle set up between uh, Alina choosing between either Mal, who's sort of like the, you know, the boy next door, good, dependable, if maybe a little dull, and of course, dark, sexy, mysterious, darkling. And it was fun. It was nicely told, but it was somewhat cliched. And when we introduced Stromhund, um, I'm pr- pronouncing that wrong. As I said, the Dread Air Pirate. N- Nikolai. <laughs> yeah, Prince Nikolai, Zarovich Nikolai. Um, again, I was like, okay, he's a great character. He's probably my favorite character at this point, except for Kaz. But I did think we were going to go a little bit, you know, love triangle again, if not love quadrangle, with, with um, uh, Darkling still flirting with her. And I really liked the fact that they actually didn't go that way, that there was a little bit of rivalry between Mal and Nikolai, but it didn't it didn't go into a lot of the cliche places. They both respected each other a lot. And even when you get this kind of, well, she's got to, you know, look like she's interested in Nikolai. They're doing that for plot reasons, and it made some sense. And there was a lot of respect shown between Nikolai and Mal instead of it being, oh, Mal gets super jealous, and the Nikolai is there to confront her, com- comfort her, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, I think the show did a really good job of balancing it because it's clear throughout she is in love with Mal. There, there are no other contenders for her affection at this point. Like, that's who she wants to be with. And there are very good political reasons for her to marry Nikolai. And that's that's basically what he said. I said what he proposes. It's a literal proposal. He says the best way for you to have the power that you need to make the change that you want to change is for you to marry me. We can do that. And I know that you're not going to be in love with me. I know you're probably still going to be with Mal on right. the side, which is not great for politics, but... 
that is what it is. And so it's very upfront about the fact that it's not a like, ooh, who is she going to fall in love with? It's yeah. does she make this political choice, which will certainly hurt Mal's feelings and cause a problem for their relationship? Or is she going to just be with Mal, which will make all of the political stuff that she's trying to achieve much harder? And I thought that was a really interesting framing for it. Yeah. And even like at the very end of the season, Mal kind of has to go off and find himself. And we'll talk about that because I think that's also an interesting direction to take a romance in this kind of, uh, you know, fantasy setting. And I think I think we're supposed to think that there's some possibility that while they're away, that um, uh, that Alina might start to fall for Nikolai a little bit. But even there, there was a wonderful line at the end, in the last episode where they're, they're flirting a little bit about the upcoming coronation. And he says something like, you know, if you kiss me, I want it to be or if you're smiling at me, I want it. To, I want it to be because you're interested in me, not because you're trying to forget him, which Again, often in that situation, the Nikolai character comes in very aggressively and I think kind of almost opportunistically to sort of say, well, oh, no, don't think about them. Think about me instead. And for Nikolai to expressly name that and be like, no, I want you to figure out what you're doing with Mal. And only once that's resolved, if then there's a place for me, let's talk about it. It was, again, just a really nice shift away from that cliche. Yeah. And I think... I I think that's absolutely right. And I do think that basically the way Alina's love life plays out is that she has multiple people who are interested in her, but they've kind of dropped the idea that maybe it's a triangle and she's interested in one or the other or how is she going to choose. She's made her choice. Her choice is very clear. So even though I think in this season, the Darkling continues to be in love with her in a very stalkery way. Um, and I think he, he does genuinely have feelings for her, but they are very mm-hmm. toxic, possessive kind of feelings for her. Um, right. She's no longer like, ooh, that's intriguing, because it's not. She's in love with Mal. And Nikolai right. is very charming and charismatic and understands her and the moves she's trying to make and the things she's trying to do. And he also wants, like, they're very aligned on what they want politically for Ravka. And it makes a lot of sense that they would have an alliance and that that alliance would pretty much have to be a marriage. Um, But they're both also very clear on who it is that she is actually in love with. And Nikolai being able to say, like, okay, if that changes, then we can do something, but not pretending that it's going to change or that he's Mm -hmm. convincing her to change. I think that's a big part of why he was one of my favorite characters in this. And again, it's it's the playing against cliche because in stories like this, one of the things you quickly learn is that when someone seems too good to be true, they almost always are actually too good to be true. And here, you know, we originally meet him as the power behind the, the people who are paying the crows to go get her. And now they're going to be angry at the crows for not getting her. And oh, by the way, now he's a pirate. No, no, no. He's a privateer as we keep getting refer- I should I should call him the, the dread privateer, Nikolai. But, um, you know, and then he, but then he's actually really, he's a Zarovich and he's charming and, I kept waiting for that other shoe to drop, and I was so glad it didn't. I was so glad that they just let him be actually someone who wants to be a good ruler and who is, you know, he's a little bit scheming. He's a little bit doing what he thinks he needs to do to for what is right for his country and his power base. But 
he never betrays anybody. He never has a like, oh, you shouldn't have trusted me moment. He's just a good guy. And it's rare that we let a show like – that a show like this just lets that happen. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. Um, I don't think I have a lot to add, but it is nice. And I think in the books, again, reining myself in, but you do see much yeah. more of a contrast between him and Vasily, who's the older brother who is supposed to become the Tsar and is murdered very much because he was stupid. Um, and that that is a much quicker plot point in the book, It's or in, in the show than it is in the book. Um so you don't get as much of that contrast, but it is very much like, oh, there has been this corrupt royal line. We know that their father, or at least Vasily's mm -hmm. father, uh, it was a rapist uh, who had raped Genya. And that's something which also gets a lot more weight in the books, just because they have more time to deal with it than in the show. But the fact that in the show, Nikolai went is originally like, no, she she killed him, she's a traitor. <laughs> right. And then they're like, oh, actually, he was a rapist who had been abusing her for a long time. And he's like, oh, yeah. in that case, she's fine. Uh, and he shouldn't have done that. And, like, correctly places the blame on his father and protects Genya is another thing where I think that that shows he is actually a good person yeah, who wants good things. And, and it's very contrasted with the you know, much more My little Polly Hart will always want to see if we can uh, go in that direction, especially because I do think there's an aspect which to which... Which is good which, for Ravka because then Nikolai you know, can She's at such a point one. of transition and, and now and Nikolai sorry. speak to very different parts of her life. And I think I, I did actually read that, that one book and I do think in some ways, both in the book, but even in the show, I see where there could be potential with her and Nikolai. But yeah, I think it's very clear that right now, this is her choice, is Mal. And so let's actually stay with that, because here's again where I think the book raises a really interesting question and kind of plays with the thought of how love and romance is often presented. Because one of the things we learn in this book is that there are all of these ways in which Mal's connection to her seems like it is, you know, it's it's not just like storybook romance, it is fairy tale romance in that it is fate. It is that, you know, that he kept finding orphanages that didn't that weren't right and he kept running away and going to new ones, going further and further across the country until he got to where she was. And that he's always drawn to her and he always knows where she is and that he quite literally is this last, you know, mythical beast that she has to take power from. Uh, and we'll get into all the ethics ab about that in just a second. And in a lot of books, it would just stop there and be like, look, th we are the one true love. We were made for each other. It is fate that we fall in love. And in the really cool twist, he goes, no, but wait a minute. Does that mean I don't know if you actually love me or if this is just because we're fated? You know, he kind of is like, how real are our feelings for each other if it is just fate? Um, and and at the end of the book, he, he basically needs to go off on his own and figure this out because he's not sure. Does he love her or is he just mystically connected to her and vice versa? Especially as someone who's written books and has written books that both do and don't have romance uh, and has read a lot of the genre, certainly. I was curious your take on that because it seemed like – I'm sure it's not the only one, but it was a really interesting twist on the traditional like we are fated lovers. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's definitely not standard, which I think is really cool. Um, Mm. Again, I do think in the books it is much more standard, whereas the show takes it in a slightly different direction. And I may be misremembering where they end up in which book, uh, because the season of the show does, it combines two books about Alina and one book about the crows. And so there's a lot going on that moves very quickly. Um, So I I could be misremembering what happens when. Um, But I think the show definitely adds a dimension to Mal by letting him make that choice. So again, trying to to figure out what makes sense to do the comparison on. Um, The discovering that Mal is literally a mythical creature, like the show... There are three MacGuffins, and Alina got the first one, which was a stag in the first season and in the first book. And then the second one is a sea monster, which she gets in the second book and early on in the second season of the show. And then the third one is supposed to be a firebird, but it turns out it's not a firebird, it's Mal. (laughs) Um, And that revelation happens very late in the third book, which Mm -hmm. is the end of that story arc. Um, and so there's not much of a sense of after, do they figure out what it is that they mean to each other or what do they want to do? Because uh-huh, after, their story is kind of done in the books and the show has rearranged it so that this is, assuming there's a third season, which Netflix always a big question mark, um, <laughs> which is I'm, I am concerned about because I would really like to see the third season of this show. But it yeah. does mean that this is something that that is outside of the realm of the happily ever after that you get in their original, you know, YA fantasy trilogy. And I think that's when I was saying earlier, I think Mal is much more interesting in the series than in the books. That's why I am really excited. Like the big twist at the end, Uh since we said we were going to spoil everything, I just will. But like the big twist at the end where he is going to go and become a privateer and take over for Sturmhond, and it is very Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, that's not in the books at all. That's not a thing that happens. Yeah. And so like, I'm, I'm really excited to see a story, which I don't know quite where it's going. Um, I, I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah. But I also think it's a really cool choice to have him say, no, I'm going to mm-hmm. go find myself. And I also think that's a little bit of a gender reversal from the the more traditional female character decides she has to go find herself, which is great. And I love as a trope, like this is not shade on that trope, but you don't usually see that with a male character because you don't usually see a male character whose primary job is just to be a love interest. So I think it's a cool reversal for both of those reasons. Um, and I think it's really an interesting dissection of yeah. like, is this just fate or yeah, Do I think we it's really going to work well, especially because and once the magic I love the point you made about done, the gender thing. What, and what do you become? What do you mean to way, each other? I think there's a lot of a lot of times really in a love triangle, it is a it. woman choosing between two men, and, and generally part of the idea is that they are always fawning over her, and she has to decide which of them she's going to pick, and 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 sometimes it's a lot less empowered, and sometimes it has more agency on her part, um, but so to have her be to some extent rejected by him. I mean, not in a like, I don't want to be with you anymore, but that he is leaving her, that he is saying, I don't know if we're going to be together. It, you know, I think it also, I'll be really interested to see where her character goes with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think in, in real world terms, it feels analogous to the couple who got together in high school and really love each other, but they're going to different colleges. Yeah. And some some couples stay together and get married down the line, and that's that's they want who they uh-huh. always wanted, but a lot of people break up. <laughs> and I, I think it's it's giving them space to grow up in that way, which is not something that they, they did in that form in the books. And so it's a really different choice and a really interesting choice. At my college, we always used to refer to the week after October break uh, freshman year as the week of tears. Because that was the week when you'd been at college for a couple months, you go back home, and everybody breaks up with their high school sweethearts who they thought they could Yeah, we, we referred to it as the turkey drop because it would be Thanksgiving when everybody's back in town. Yeah. Uh, and you, yeah, same, same deal. Everybody's back in town and they break up with their high yep. school sweetheart. Yep, exactly. Um, there's, of course, the added uh, complication to Alina's connection with Mal, which is that she killed him. Um, yeah. And, and he then comes back from the dead. He got better. Which they very, stati- st- 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 yeah, they very fastidiously call him a firebird. They never say a word that begins with P and ends with Phoenix. Uh, or P and begins with a Phoenix. Anyway, you get the point. He's not a Phoenix. Yeah. He's a firebird. But he comes back from the dead. And they do a cool thing where at first they think it's Nina and her magic, but she makes clear it's not her magic. Um, but before we know he's going to live, she's placed in this really hard situation. And I think here's another one of the really great ethical questions of the book. Because a lot of it is – it's not just him. It also starts with the uh, – it's called the sea spike. Was that the name of it? Um, no, the but I don't whip. remember what the name was. The Sea Whip. Thank you. Where, and this goes back to the first season. And it's this idea of sort of like, how much do you have power and magic versus how much do you take it? And how much is it okay to take magic by literally taking it from other living things, including killing them? And so the stag, one of the things in the first season is she's looking for a way to take the magic power without killing the stag. And, but, but Alex still kills the stag. And then with the sea whip, she wants to try and do this without killing the sea whip. But of course she's not able to. And, and, and the sea whip winds up getting killed. And so I think all that obviously is leading to this idea of will she kill Mal? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as, as kind of the, the, this, overarching ethical question because clearly Alex is someone, Alexander is someone who is very willing to harm others in order to take her power and that that's kind of the, you know, she doesn't want to be that but it's the like, you know, how much can I do the dark side in order to fight the dark side because it's very much kind of a Sith thing in that regard as well. What was your take on that whole question as it was raised and how they addressed it? Yeah, for me, I I didn't go to a Star Wars place. I actually went to a Star Trek place. It's very the needs of the many versus the needs of the one. Mm. Um, And it's it's a little bit more complicated because it's Alina having to decide to sacrifice Mal as opposed to Alina sacrificing herself. But it really does come down to in order to deal with the fold, which is, you know, the MacGuffin thing that they've been trying to deal with for the whole series. Right. uh, And in order to defeat Alexander they have to kill Mal. And it's a tragedy in my mind, but it's not really a question. Like, do you let the Dark Lord come to power or don't you? And the answer is you don't, even if it requires 
sacrifice. And I, I think there does eventually reach a point of like how much sacrifice is too much and who gets to make that decision, which this does not quite raise raise to that level because like eventually if you're, you know, slaughtering masses of people, you're doing the same thing he is. So what's right. the difference? But if you're talking about it's it's a trolley problem to some extent mm-hmm. of like right. do I let untold hundreds or thousands of people get killed or do I let the one person who I love personally get killed? And it's right. it's not really a question when you think about it like that. It's a tragedy, but it's pretty clear cut in my mind. You unfortunately have to kill Mal. Right. And and I think a key part of this, which in, in some ways I think it would be impossible to do it without this, but it, it would make the question a lot more complicated. Mal, Mal is perfectly happy volunteering for this. And in some ways, I think that that's a bit of a – that's a difference between neither the stag nor the sea whip. I mean, she doesn't really communicate with them the same way and they're not uh, – I think someone could say, oh, but they're not people. But no, they're, they're clearly like beings with a lot of like agency and, and life. and They're living creatures. Um in some ways, I feel like, and I'm going to try to say this without spoiling anything, there is another TV show that was watched recently by many people, which raises a similar question where the Mal character is never given the chance to have agency. And I think the fact that in this one, Mal does, I think really helps to highlight how important that is. Because I think, like, like, if either Mal didn't know, like Mal was in a coma, something, you know, whatever contrivance, or Mal was against it. Mal was like, no, I don't want to do that. Find something else. I don't want to die. How much do you think that changes the equation, if at all? I – that's a really good question. I think in the grand scheme, you still wind up with the same conclusion of – does this have to be done? Probably yes. But it does, it basically, it makes Alina's hands much dirtier if right. it's not just a question of, do I let this person who I love sacrifice himself and assist in that? Or do I murder this person who I love right. but has to die to prevent the greater tragedy? And so I think it makes things much more complicated for Alina and would make her much harder to forgive and much harder to root for because murder is bad. Yeah. But in this case, murder is not necessarily the worst option. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And I think the show doesn't go that way, but it does do a different thing, which I they didn't really touch on, but I kind of wish they do more in, in if they if we get a season three, which again, knock on Netflix, but I certainly hope so. Um, which is that because again, she was very she was hesitant about killing the stag. She didn't actually kill the stag. The Darkling did that. Uh, I don't remember exactly how the sea whip is killed, but I think to some extent she consents to it. But neither of those are creatures that she had this direct relationship with. And so you also sort of wonder, like, you know, if this wasn't the love of her life, if this was, you know, random village boy, does she have the same compunctions about it? And also, what questions does that raise? Because if then it's not are you not okay taking a single life versus are you not okay taking this particular life that is so much value to your life? Yeah. And I think, I think that's what 
the show wants to lean into. I think because that the pacing of the show was so fast, mm-hmm. they didn't really get to linger on that question. Yeah. Which they do more in, in the book. Um, it's a bit more drawn out in terms of the like, will she kill him? Yeah. She doesn't want to. Um, I mean, I think there, well, so there's also the question of like, Mal is a soldier. A random boy in a village is like, you know, not necessarily. Right. Was not part of the conflict, did not ask to be part of the conflict. I don't think Mal particularly asked to. It seems like, yeah, you're an orphan in Rathka, you probably get drafted. Yeah. Um, but at least had, you know, training and understanding and knew what was happening and was really empowered to make that choice. Yes or no, does he want to do this? Random person in a village probably doesn't. And so that to me also feels like a different form of do you murder a stranger? That feels a lot more sociopathic in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And it also, I think it raises the, like when you and I are discussing, and it's funny, um, again, not spoiling anything, but for those who know what I was referencing about the other series that talked about this, this is a similar question that I've brought up in my coverage of that story. It raises, again, I think, the question of the the danger of sort of objective ethics, because you and I can sit here and say that, yes, from kind of the objective standpoint, the idea of saving this entire country and all the people who are are harmed and affected versus this one life seems like a fairly basic question. But that's because we're not connected to the one life or to all those many other lives. And then I think part of what the show is doing a great job of is sort of saying like, yeah, that, that that person doesn't exist. There isn't anyone on high who can make that ethical decision. Everyone involved has their own subjective connections to the different pieces on the board that we're talking about. Yeah. So and let's talk about the other side of this big decision, which is what do we do with the Darkling? Um because you're right, I think for most of this show, this season, she's not really tempted by the Darkling. Um, they certainly give us a lot of scenes where I think a lot of the audience is supposed to be uh, tempted because they figured <laughs> out that uh, the actor is incredibly attractive. And as it turns out, heroines being almost tempted in very seductive ways by evil men, that sells pretty darn well. <laughs> um, and I've wanted to be a, a heroine like that a few times myself, so I can understand why. Um but yeah, I, I like that in this story, she's not very tempted by it. And instead, we get this really great sort of rejection of it, him especially at the end. What was your kind of feeling about how the Darkling story is wrapped up? Um, I, I mean, it feels simplistic to say I liked it, but I did. So it's another one that's difficult to talk about because... The pacing was so fast, again, that I think that there there's some... Losing some of the interplay between them in the books is kind of a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, oh, am I tempted by him? Am I not? Who will I choose?-ness of it all is goes on for much more of the books. Um, and I think that cutting that off was a, a good thing. Um, and comparing how his how things wrap up here to how things wrap up in the book is a little bit difficult. This is one of the things which I don't want to talk about what the book does too much because they might use this in a future season. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be great to talk about on this show. I think you will really like it. Um, And I was disappointed that they did not do it in the series. Um, 
so it's really hard to cast sort of my feelings beyond that. Um, but I do think that like the rejection of the Darkling and everything he stands for is good. And I thought it was really interesting that his mother also had a, just a flat out rejection of him. Yeah. Even though his mother is also objectively pretty terrible. Yeah. Like she's also a war criminal. She, she murdered people, many people. Uh, we get some backstory, which is partially she was probably traumatized as a little kid, but partially she just kind of murdered some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that turns out to be a huge part of the backstory of everything that happens in the series. But even she, after all of these years, is like, oh, Alexander, I loved you. I tried to help you. And it wasn't enough. And you have to die now. Yeah. And makes no bones about it. Um, in a in a very pragmatic and upfront way of saying, you are wrong. The things you are doing are wrong. And even though I am also bad, I'm not that bad. Yeah. Or I'm not bad in that way. And you need to be stopped, even though I love you. Like, I thought that was... Mm-hmm. Ba- Bagra and his relationship to me was in some ways more interesting than his relationship with Elena, who he was just kind of obsessed with. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And... At, at the very end, after she's claimed her power, after she's wiped out the fold, there's this great scene between her, between Alina and the Darkling. And he's sort of giving his one more pitch and he says, let me be your monster. You know, he, where he's basically saying like, all these people are going to be against you. Let me be the one who does the dark things for you. He's trying to sort of pitch his stuff in the most positive light possible. And she says... And one of my favorite lines, because this is – it felt like so clearly a commentary on a lot of other recent stories we've gotten. Uh, Kylo Ren, I'm a little bit looking at you, but a lot of other characters as well. She said uh, – she says, I will save myself. Your legacy is already written. For you, there is no redemption. And just stabs him in the belly. While he's like not a threat, not attacking her. He's like pleading for his life. And she's like, nope. I'm killing you. And then when she and, and just that line, especially there is no redemption was just, you know, because we did get the sob story about his mother and we saw way back when that all this kind of started because him and his partner at the time were being chased by the, you know, an angry mob. And so there's reasons to sympathize for him. And so when he's like, no, Alina, let me help you. I definitely had a like, are we going to get the redemption story now? Are we going to get the, he's going to help her and it's all going to be okay. And so for her, and and we even go so far as the first time she stabs him, one of the shadow creatures comes out of him and has to be killed. And she kind of looks at him and says, oh, so you were never really in control of them, were you? Which again could be seen as leading towards, uh, oh, it wasn't really your fault. You played with dark magic, but the dark magic took you over. And then for her to say, or she'd already said, but still the line applies, there is no redemption. And she just stabs him again and he finally dies. I absolutely loved that. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really powerful thing because he he will continue to have power and followers as long as he is alive because he does have a compelling point which is that the grisha 
are essentially an oppressed minority. They're, you know, in the country next to Ravka up in Fyrda, they're literally murdered as witches. There have been many times in Grisha history where they have been murdered by townspeople. Um, like a lot of the Grisha saints were, their sainthood was when they were killed by other people for right. being Grisha. So it's not like his points are completely without merit, but he takes we are an oppressed group and turns it into we should be the ones in charge because we are more powerful in like a supremacist kind of way, which is no good. And he is fully willing to murder as many people as necessary to gain that power. And like, that's what the fold is, is he he created it as a weapon and that was dark magic and it led to bad things that were unexpected, but then he continued to use it as a weapon. And when Alina is trying to dismantle it, like it's the whole arc of the first season, if she thinks mm -hmm. they're going to get rid of it, he actually just wants to be able to control it, to use it as a weapon to maintain his power. Yeah. And so that to me, like that makes it very clear that this may have come from trauma and it may have come from having a valid point at some point, but it is no longer about I am trying to protect myself as a marginalized person and protect the other people in my community. It is very much about I am trying to seize personal power and will do whatever I have to to do that. Right. And so there kind of is no redemption from that. Those are choices that he made. And so like, how, how do you redeem yourself from that? I would love to think it's possible, but I genuinely don't know yeah. how a character would do that. Ma Magneto is, is rooting very hard for this character. He's, it's very much a that kind of a story of the, you know, the oppressed group, but the, the, they have a lot of these powers and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, anything else we want to say about, oh, just one other little commentary on that. It comes later after all of this, but I did think just to, just to lampshade a little bit more of the point they're making, there's a point later in it where um, Nikolai has left the room after Alina's having her girl boss moment with the two other Grisha who are spending time with her, uh, Genya and um, Zoya. And they're talking about Nikolai, but Zoya says in a kind of flirtatious way, oh, I could fix him. Which felt like a very specific callback to how many people want to look like, you know, especially in the kind of the fan fiction or just the other portrayals of this. You know, there's the old cliche of the people who will look at someone like the Darkling and be like, oh, I mean, yes, he killed all those people, but he's just so pretty and I could fix him. I could make him good again. And I felt like the inclusion of that line was very intentional as a way of being like, yeah, we're not going down that road. Um. Hmm. So just picture me holding up a big sign that says spoilers redacted for future books. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> we won't get into that then. Um, but I, I mean, I do think it's a very like fandom-y kind of thing. The mm -hmm. like, this is a war criminal. He's my little meow meow and I can fix him. Yeah. Like, I think, I think that's a thing that, that fans can enjoy. And I don't think that there's a problem with enjoying that as a fan. I do think in real life, Trying to make that defense of a genocidal maniac is bad. Yeah. But I don't care about it in fan fiction or oh, yeah, like totally. fandom totally. or loving villains on shows. Go for it. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. And I, I'm, I mean, I have not checked AO3, but I'm going to guess that Darkling Alina has far more hits than Mal Alina. 
because Melalina is just not very hot on screen. <laughs> like, they're good for each other, and they're just like, they should wind up with each other. But Ben Barnes is really, really sexy and really good at being seductive and evil. <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, I think in some ways, like, I say this for me because um, I feel feel bad, but Adam Driver did nothing for me. Mm-hmm. So I feel very much like Kylo Ren wants what the Darkling has. Yes. Uh, (laughs) But it's, but it's that same kind of like, I'm evil, but in a sexy way. And I've murdered a lot of people, but isn't that intriguing (laughs) to you, the female protagonist and you, the the viewer of any gender. And it's like, yeah, sometimes that is intriguing. All right. (laughs) Look, in terms of seductive, but evil and bad boy, you can fix Adam Driver clears the Hayden Christensen bar with so much room to clear. <laughs> and granted, it's a low bar, but but you're right. No, Ad, I think Ben Barnes is the top and then Hayden Christensen away below and then – or no, Adam Driver away below and then Hayden below that. Um, one other thing I'll say on romance and then we'll get to the um, Kaz and the, the Six of Crows of it all because honestly, that's my favorite part of the story. And I know I think you've said similar as well. I love unrequited romance stories and I love will-they-won't-they stories, but I hate when they're overdone and I hate when they're somewhat contrived. And so the fact that the the season ended with not one, not two, but three one true pairings that should be together all being apart, the Kaz and Inez not being together we're going to talk about, but like... I have a pardon from the king, but I got I dropped it on the ground. And oh, okay, that that was really stupid. <laughs> it just felt so contrived. It just felt like so that she could hang out in the I can't be with my one true love group with the other two. I hated it so much. So, so I will say to their credit, and this does involve talking about the books. They are setting up for a really specific plotline from the books that requires. Um, Matthias to still be in prison. Okay. So they needed a way for, like, they need, Nina's motivation had been getting this pardon. And so they needed a way for that to be her motivation, but not work. I think the execution there was really, like, ridiculous. Okay. Just but because I was because, But because I know what's coming and I'm, like, gleeful about it and I can't wait for you to experience it, because I, uh-huh. I think you will, I think you will like. Okay. If, if the next season, if there is a next season, and it does the plot line that I expect it to from ev- where all of the dominoes are now waiting to be knocked down, mm-hmm. I will really like it, and I think you will really like it. I'm, and I, I think you're right. It's probably the execution. And it's also probably, as you said, this is a number of books all being combined into one. And so if we had all three of those love that almost get together but then has to break apart over three different books, that's one thing. But to have Inez walk away from Kaz, Mal walk away from Alina, and uh, Nina not be able to get to Matthias all within 15 minutes of each other. I was like, come on. Who got dumped the day before they wrote this? Because this is just someone who's like, no one can be happy. And and I do think like comparing that to the books is interesting. So one thing that I will say, talking not about the books, but about what they did, is they did a lot of picking and choosing. Because season one was book one with some crow stuff added in. Season two is books two, three, and five. Mm -hmm. And it's setting up for books four and six. 
<laughs> and so it's very so like some of these things don't happen in the books at all like that Mal and Alina thing does not happen in the books at all so that's a really interesting choice the Kaz and Inej stuff happens at a completely different point and the Matthias and Nina stuff is a setup at the very beginning for them so it's a really like weird mishmash that I think does feel a lot like who got dumped but it also just feels like oh in our grab bag of plot points that we were putting together whoops we accidentally put three breakups from the completely different areas into one so it's a little bit weird I think that a lot of that is execution um I should also add that mixed in with those in that same 15 minutes, perhaps the most sympathetic character of all finds out that the love of her life just got killed. So it's like just romance is dying all over the – in terms of David and Jenya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's wrenching. Yeah. OK. But so let's talk about the crows. Um I just love Kaz. I, I, I love all of them. But, but talk to me about your feeling on the crows and how they're portrayed here. Um, I like them. So the, the the crows are the best. I think that's pretty much universally agreed on. Like, I am very much an Alina defend. Like, when it comes to the books, at least I am an Alina defender. But the crows books are better. <laughs> they yeah. just are. Um, and I think the same is true in the show. The crows are a more engaging and dynamic group. I think the Alina through line is a much more stand, like they've subverted in some ways, but it's a much more standard. There's a chosen one hero and she has to save the world and defeat the bad guy. And you, you know, in broad strokes, how that's going to play out. Right. And it's fun to watch. And I like it. The crows are special. Like they, they just feel special. They feel unlike other things that happen in in the genre that they're in. Uh, and they are a lot of fun personalities playing off each other. They do pull off the thing where it's like very dark and intense and broody and then also lighthearted and funny. Mm-hmm. They are fun to watch. It's fun to see them go on heist. It's fun to see all of the like reveals when Kaz's big plan suddenly comes to light and you realize that like Nina didn't betray them. Mm-hmm. Like that was part of the plan. Like all that works so well and is so good that it's like you would watch just a crow series yeah. <laughs> i i think that somewhere in the dictionary they should just cross out the entire definition that they have for the phrase ride or die and just have a picture of inez and that one moment of like why are we doing this why are we doing this he killed my brother okay let's kill him like it's just yeah. it's so or, beautiful like in <laughs> In the first season when she's like, she doesn't know if she can kill because it's against her religion and she's really genuinely conflicted about it. And then in the second season, she finds out when Kaz was a kid, this is his dark back, his his big secret everything. When he was a kid, somebody took advantage of him and his older brother and his older brother was killed. And he tells Nej that. And her immediate, there's no morality. There's no, I need to talk to the saints about this. I need to reconcile, you know, what we're going to do with what my heart says is right. There's just flat out, then we destroy him. Yeah. And it's so great. It is ride or die to a T. (laughs) Well, and he is very much the same for her. Yeah. He has in... He sacrificed a, a great deal of, like, his personal fortune and his personal stakes to be able to keep her from being sold back into slavery, essentially. And one thing that I love, and I think this is often the mark of an int- a really like compassionate character, is when they can observe the pain of one person and want to fix it, 
But then instead of just being like, cool, I saved you, we're done, be like, now I want to save others. And so it's just a throwaway line. But in that last episode, when he's back in the Crows Club and is clearly doing really well, and he sends an offer to the brothel where he basically says that he will buy out the indentured contracts of any of the, the women at the brothel to let them be be barmaids at his, at his uh, establishment. And he clearly says, like, yeah, they'll be serving drinks, they'll be customers, but in his words, there'll be no skin trade. You know, this is a salaried position. And that's like – I think it's pretty clear he could hire people anywhere. And yes, their customers are like they're they're gonna be flirtatious and pretty, but he's not doing that for the business. He's doing that because he saw what happened to Inez and now he wants to buy out others as well. It's just such a beautiful moment. It's really good. <laughs> you describe him at one point as an anti villain. Talk more about what that is, because he, he's in this really interesting place was- where like go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that was a typo, but it's a great phrase. Yeah. <laughs> it's a phrase that my friend Paul has used on this show a couple of times. I'm curious, what, what, like, well, whether you use that phrase or not, what, where do you think he stands? Because he's, like, he's fastidiously the, you know, even at the end, they've all had their big victory. And, you know, the king says, you know, we thank you so much for your help. And he says, we'll take your thanks in gold. Thank you very much. Um, where do you place him in kind of hero villain status? <laughs> I mean, he he is very much an anti-hero. He is somebody who is ultimately on the good guy's side, but very much on his own terms. Um, Like, I don't think he would participate in war crimes for profit. But if he's on the side of like, if he's he's on Alina's side, he's still going to look for ways to profit from being on Alina's side. Right. Um, And I think he does have a lot of personal revenge motivation, which is... Is interesting and we'll definitely talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it spends a lot of time and effort trying to come across as I have no morality, I have no lines, I will do whatever I have to to get my revenge and get my gold. But it also demonstrates he does have a line and he does have, like, he will draw a moral line in the sand yeah. uh, and not cross it. And so I think that firmly places him still in hero territory. But he is a hero who does not have qualms about most murders. He does not have, like, in in the books, he straight up tortures some people. Um, he is, he, his moral bar is much lower than most of the other characters and definitely, like, sort of the lowest of the good guys. Yeah. And he's, he's okay with that. He absolutely does not mind. And he, he will be a villain when he has to. But he is not somebody who is, and like what I had mentioned when we were talking about this before, is like the difference between him and the Darkling is very much one of scale because the Darkling, I think, has much more noble causes for his, you know, villainy initially, but is a genocidal maniac war criminal, whereas Kaz has really only very personal motivations for doing horrible things, but also is not going to murder swaths of people. Right. Like, I think one of the most revealing scenes about him is when he's he has that final confrontation with Pekka, and he, he brings him down, and for a lot of the episode, he is strongly implying that he has kidnapped Pekka's ki- kid and literally buried the kid alive. And that... Yeah, and, the, and this is a child. This is like a six-year-old. Yeah, this isn't like, you know, your teen, your, your 20-year-old son. And I thought it was brilliantly written that I watched that whole scene 
not honestly knowing if he had done that or not. Where I thought that the way his character had written, it was possible that he had done that. And in the end, we find that he hadn't and that he – he but he had kidnapped the child, which is in and of itself a thing that should be mentioned. But he didn't put the child in any real danger. I don't think he ever would. And he acts a little almost kind of jokingly offended when someone thinks he might have. But also, like, he wants people to think he might have. Um, well, and he's he's been so convincing. And this is one of my favorite things. Uh, he's been so convincing that Jesper and Wylan, who are both – crows they both work with him and generally like respect him also both think he is fully capable of burying a child alive yeah um because he sends them to do like reconnaissance basically at pekka rollins's hidden country estate and they discover this kid and they say to each other we can't tell kaz that he has a son because they know full well kaz will exploit that and do something terrible to this child and it turns out kaz already knows and fully is they're like ha yeah we we didn't find anything and he's like really you didn't find his son and they're like oh and so they they it's like, yes we did he's there but only because kaz already knows but the fact that people who I wouldn't say trust, but more or less trust and like Kaz also think it's totally possible that Kaz would murder a child, I think speaks to the fact that Kaz has very effectively painted himself as somebody who will do horrible things when the reality is that actually, no, he's not going to murder an innocent child. And I think, and I I do think it's also important, I think it's in part because he's just like, he doesn't want to murder innocents in general. But I think we are definitely supposed that that Pekka's child is about the age, maybe a little bit younger than he was in the flashbacks we see where his brother got defrauded and ruined by Pekka. And I think that's by no means coincidental. He is Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's really well done. Yeah. I think another reason why I love Kaz so much is I, I've talked before on the show that I'm disabled. I have a prosthetic leg, I walk with a, a cane a lot the way he does. He is some of my favorite disability representation that I've seen, in part because he's not – like, I think we need more people who are in wheelchairs. We need more people who are, you know, much – I don't like the idea of disability as a scale, but I should – whose movement is much more impaired than he is. He's able to fight with the cane. He does some great fighting moves with the cane that are great. But if you, I watch that fight scene carefully, he still is, he still has a bad leg. Like, he's not faking that by any means. Um but there's a beautiful scene where they talk about like people go the uh, I think when they're in shoe and they talk about like someone going after your weakness, and he makes clear that he wants everyone to think his weakness is the cane, it, it, and his bad leg. It's not his weakness is Inez, like and his feelings for her because that's the part. It's so that, good. It, I know it's so romantic and it's so beautiful. It just like, but it just it was just. A lot of times when disabled characters are in this show, either they're the like the thing that has to be rescued. Or they're, they have such a heart of gold. They're just perfect and wonderful. And how can you not want to help them? And so having someone who's disabled also be kind of an a-hole and just really dark, <laughs> but also have this incredible romantic side. It was just so great to watch. It's it's really great. And the, the fact they never – he doesn't conveniently become not disabled. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a – he's not a Grisha. He doesn't have a superpower that makes up for yep. – makes up for that's a, not a great way of putting it he doesn't have something that makes his disability no longer relevant right he Which happens has a bad way leg. too often in, in shows like this yes 
So he he has a bad leg. He uses a cane. He can walk without the cane at some for some period of time and will eventually need it or need to stop walking. Uh, and he is the scene. I will say it's better in the books, but the scene where he basically walks into one of the clubs where he used to work and is like, yeah, so I will fight all comers. And if I win, you all have to work for me now. And then fights all comers even knowing he is going to, like, he's going to be in pain because he's in this massive fist fight, but he's specifically going to be in pain because of his disability, and it's a real risk because he knows that he has to balance what he can do with how, like, how far he can push himself. Right. And he takes that risk anyway. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely imagine that. And both for, I mean, just the cinematographic of it. Like, I'm not so, someone who really loves fight scenes, but watching him use the cane to grab a chair and throw it, like, it, it's clear that this is someone who has thought about, um, did, did you watch the show Hawkeye, the MCU show? No. Echo, who's one of the characters on there, and and she's kind of a villain, but she has some. She kind of becomes a good guy towards the end, a good character towards the end. She has a prosthetic leg, and there's a couple times where she uses the prosthetic leg in very specific ways in combat that you couldn't do with a normal leg. And I just I love that. And watching him do that thing with a cane, but you're right. It's also it. it he knows how many spoons he has, you know, to use our own modern language, and he balances that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I will say, just as like um. A shout out to Lee Bardugo, the author. She has spoken about she has, I don't know precisely, you know, what what the background on it is, but it is not my point. But she has a bad leg. She uses a cane. Yeah. uh, And she wrote Kaz in part because she wanted to write a disabled character who was a badass. Yeah. And that's really awesome. And she just landed an enormous book deal. Like, that's a whole side tangent. Um, But she is making... Eight figures, which uh, eight eight figures. I think it's to write ten books across the publisher. They're like, we don't care what they are, we don't care what genre, we don't care what age range. Just keep writing books for us. Okay. Uh, and I think having a disabled woman writer make that kind of bank is really awesome. Yeah. And she's really cool. Anyway, so that's a whole side tangent, but I, I think that like. One of the ways that you get better disability rep is to have more disabled people involved in media creation. And I think that this is a really good, like, look at how powerful that can be. Yeah, I think it really is. Especially because, and here's my one big bone to pick with the way his story is told. I'm curious your thoughts on it. One thing they also make clear, and this is so I think we often like to think of physical disability and mental disability or mental health issues as fundamentally different things that are totally unconnected and totally unlinked. And they're often a lot of the disability communication. Like when you say, oh, this person's disabled, I think for most people, the image is a person in a wheelchair. I mean, that quite literally is the logo for, you know, accessibility <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and obviously there's many other physical disabilities, but also mental disability is a big thing. And I think we kind of get you know, this is Grisha in an uh, approximate 1800s kind of world. We don't get modern medical tech terminology used. But I think saying that he has PTSD or borderline or something like that is is very legitimate. And And seeing the way that's portrayed, I thought was really beautiful, especially because we get a better sense of this is why he doesn't like to be touched. And this is why he doesn't 
uh, why he keeps his gloves on all the time. It's because he has very big issues about being touched, which again can be very common with people who have a lot of childhood trauma. How did you feel about that was portrayed and 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 then how that comes about in his romance with Inez? I oh. <laughs> So that was one of the few moments on the show that I did not think landed well. Yeah. Um and again, it's one that I can't really talk about without talking about the books because a lot of the dialogue for that is directly from the book. Okay. Um but like so I I said that they they do book f- Five. That dialogue is in book four. Okay. <laughs> um, and like, I literally looked it up before we did this. I was like, I'm, I'm not. Where, where is that? Yeah. Um, I think it lands very differently in the book because his relationship with her is at a different point in the book. And just to be where clear, he has been. We're talking about the scene where he finally yes, sort of professes sorry. his feelings for her. Um, and she kind of pushes him to do it. You know, she says, what do you want? And he says, to die under a pile of gold, which I'm okay with the idea that Kez is a dragon now. Um, but she pushes a little more. And he, and he says, no, I, I don't want you to leave. I want you. And and her response is to say, you know, to kind of almost mock him a little bit and say, but, but would you want me with your gloves on? Would you turn your face when I try to kiss you? And I actually wrote down this and quote it. And then her final line is, I will have you without your armor, Kaz Brecker, or I'll not have you at all. Um, and as I hear where you're going with the books, but just first, just kind of like spell it out. What about that didn't land well for you? It didn't land well for me because it feels a lot like, I don't want to deal with your mental health issues, Kaz Brecker, so come back to me when you've uh, healed a little. Which is complicated because on the one hand... You can't necessarily ask your ask your loved ones to fix you. You yeah. can't like if you're going to be somebody who. I think he would be very toxic in a relationship, and a lot of that is from the PTSD. But that doesn't mean it would be okay to be toxic in a relationship. Yeah, and so that's a really complicated fine line to walk. And I think for me, the tone of the show ended up too much on the side of I don't want to deal with your your issues as opposed to how I read it in the books where it was much more about you haven't yet let me in on understanding Mm -hmm. where you came from and what your trauma is and I'm not willing to commit myself to a relationship with somebody who doesn't trust me with that which to me those felt like and that, that some of that is me reading into it, but to me those felt like very different scenes because I think yeah. we had seen more of them trusting and taking care of and sacrificing for each other at that point in the show, whereas I think in the books it still feels more one-sided. Yeah. Um, and so it feels much more like, yeah, it's a good choice for her to say, I'm not going to settle for a relationship with somebody who won't let me in. And so like the line about armor feels much more like, please trust me as opposed mm. to, I don't want to deal with your issues. Yeah. And I think that would make so, I, cause I was thinking about if you just had one or two more lines from her, that scene would land so differently because to me, I think you're right. I think if it is about the trust thing, it makes sense. Or even I think, you know, different people have different, levels of physical touch and physical affection that they need in a relationship. And I think for someone to say, like, I have all the respect in the world for where you are 
and that for you, physical touch is very difficult, but I really need physical touch in a relationship. And until you're able to give more, I don't know if I can be with you. That's a very different conversation. I think to me, what was so hard about it, especially, yeah, because there was a little bit of that trust, but it was almost more like, you know, I need you to, to go this far is it felt like it came right after he has made a huge step in that direction where he's like, okay, he's like, he's loosened the bonds on his armor and he's shown that he's trying to work towards taking it off, but that it's going to be a slow process. And, and again, like for her to say, I I can't be here for the process, which I, I guess she's kind of doing, but it just, it, there was no acknowledgement of like, I love that you've taken this first step. Now I need you to go further before I can be with you. It just kind of felt like shaming him. And especially now that we've linked that the fact that he has the problems with touch is so linked to his trauma, it it just really felt wrong. And I kind of like, I I couldn't really cheer for her as she walked away. Yeah, I feel like, again... So I, since I haven't reread the books, I don't remember exactly which facets of their relationship have happened and which haven't yet. I also think in some ways she has more... So she makes a lot of decisions in the book about what she's going to do in the future mm-hmm. that I think it, it implies that maybe Kaz has given her some of the ideas for them mm. uh, or has arranged them. And that feels very different to me in having him sort of be the one pushing those even though they are things that she wants and they are good things as opposed to the books where she cares very deeply about him and wants him to trust her but she's not making decisions assuming that her life is going to be intertwined with his she's making decisions for herself about you know what's she going to do with the cut of the money that they get from this big heist and she knows what she wants to do and would love for him to be part of her life, but has made a decision that because he won't trust her, she can't build that life image around him, which I think is really valid and is a really good choice. And I really like the way that's handled. So it was a little bit disappointing in the series. And I think there there were some reasons for those choices. Um, But I think it was a little bit disappointing that it was much more like, ah, yes, I've been secretly looking for your family this whole time, which he may have in the books. I don't remember if she had said she wanted to find them first or if he had been looking for them first, but it felt, and like her, without getting into the details of what I do or not, (laughs) I don't remember. There is definitely a chance that some of what I'm remembering happened in slightly different orders, so it may not be as off from the books as I think it is, but I think it casts Kaz much more... I think, I think the show tries to make him more sympathetic by making him, letting him be more open with her earlier. And unfortunately, the flip side of that is that it means that her rejection of him there comes off a lot more poorly than yeah. if they are still in the midst of things working out. So it's... It's really good dialogue in the context that it is in the book, and it really rubs me the wrong way in the show. Yeah. And, and again, it sounds like – and I'm not complaining. I thought the show was phenomenal. It, though, does sound like it's one of those where, like, because they're trying to have this very specific rhythm of season one, we establish all these couples who might get together. Season two, they get together. 
but then they get se- or at least they lean towards it but then they get separated again so that by the end of season three we can have you know them all getting their happily ever afters that they needed to kind of like pull things from a couple different parts and so it just it, it just it just felt like it just didn't work so but i'm glad we're it particularly because these issues of romance and mental trauma and touch and you know i are all things like i love that we're exploring a character who has real trouble being touched romantically because of their trauma and that it's a male character or we don't see that often so i love that we're doing this and i have faith that we're going to see it done well i just want us to comment on that that one part yeah i it, that part so you had originally like put that into the discussion and i was really glad that you had because i had definitely thought about it and been like is that too specific am i reading too much into that and <laughs> so i was really glad that it was like no okay that really that moment did not land the way they wanted it to and, yeah and it's not it's not a great moment which is sad because everything else about their relationship is so good it really is it really is and again we still have a third season so We'll go there. Yes. And I will be, yeah, I'm very excited for, for more of that season. Um, so there's a lot more we could talk about. And the question of like the saints and religion is one that we're actually going to talk about a little bit in the Patreon uh, segment at the end uh, for patrons. But just quickly before that, is there any of the last points or comments you wanted to make or questions you wanted to raise? Why are pirates so cool in fiction? Right. <laughs> um, Privateers. I... Privateers. Yeah. No, I don't know that I have I have much else. Um, I just I really, really enjoyed the series. I think that there were some cool things that they did in it that like, like I said, I liked better than the way some of the things were handled in the books. And I am re- I really hope they get a third season because I want to see the heist so bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it would be really cool if they actually do the stuff in the next season that I think they're going to. So, yeah. um, and it would be nice if they get a next season to actually get to see the Nina Matthias plotline. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were set up so well. Their chemistry in season one, I mean, just the whole, like her seducing him and, you know, the Romeo and Julietness of it was so well done. And I just, I get why you were keeping them away, but I just, is he going to engage in the fights? And pr- I just didn't care in the same way. And it, it just felt like those two were in a holding pattern. Um, so I'm re- yeah. really glad um, that we're going to see where that goes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it for me. I definitely um, would recommend the show. It does have that. I think of it as like the pacing of a CW teen drama uh-huh. in a lot of ways <laughs> where it moves fast and the costumes all look a little bit cheap and ridiculous, but it's so much fun that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and so I if if you enjoyed the Vampire Diaries you should watch Shadow and Bone. And if you like heists, you should read Six of Crows, which I know I said last time, and I talked about it slightly less this time, but for real, read these books. They are very good. And if you just want the absolute best and you're not so into the like YA fantasy love triangle, read Six of Crows. It's the books that are about specifically Kaz and his crew, as opposed to Alina and Mal. Uh, They are phenomenal we haven't even talked about jesper and the i forgot (laughs) i forgot we had a one night stand and we turned into like long-term lovers and it's such a beautiful story and so well done oh they're so good jesper and wyland absolute like they 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 are the otp like let's be real that's very fair that's very fair all right well uh becky as always thank you so much for being a part you go becky or becca 
for some reason I got Becky. Becky, okay, that's Becky. That's what I got thought of. Okay. Becky, as always, thank you so much for this. Uh, we're going to have you on for just a little while longer for the patrons. But everyone who's not sticking around for that, uh, you're a published author and you've written some really great stuff. Talk about uh, a little more about where people can find you, both commentary stuff you've done, but also your actual writings. Um, yeah. So my books, you can uh, check them out at BeckyAllenBooks.com if you want all of the links. Um, but I have written two YA fantasy novels, like I said. Um, I am part of that world um, that are about a very angry teenage girl in a desert world who discovers the water that can bring back her the magic that can bring back her world's water. Um, but she's a slave who has been abused, and she doesn't really want to help anyone in her world. Uh, and so it's very much about what what could possibly make her decide that it's that she's going to help people after all of the uh, trauma that she has. That's fair. Uh, and uh, so Bound by Blood and Sand is the first book. Um if you want me, like I said, BeckyAllenBooks.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as long as Twitter stays afloat, which who knows? Um, I am at Allreb, A-L-L-R-E-B. Um, and you can also, from either Twitter or uh, my website, find my newsletter, which I send once every couple of months, and it tends to be a long ramble about writing or... Um, learning to swim as an adult, taking adult swimming classes, um, and dealing with burnout and other just general living life and trying to figure out how all those pieces fit together stuff. Nice. Nice. Well, so glad to have you on as always. Uh, definitely do check that out. Some great writing in those books. It sounds weird. <laughs> definitely do check all <laughs> that out. Uh, Becky, Becky's a great writer as well as a great commentator on this stuff. So good to have you on. And of course, for those of you who are, uh, tuning in you can find this podcast as well as my star wars universe podcast that becky has been a guest on we did a great couple of things on rogue one and the idea of the hero's journey versus sort of the big collective um uh, all that you can find by going to theethicalpanda.com there also you'll find all the ways to support this podcast through our patreon and other things like that and most importantly the ways to give us feedback love to continue the conversation with y'all what did y'all think of this season of shadow and bone and the books and how it all connected find us an email twitter tiktok all those things so i'm uh, so on behalf of myself and becky thank you all so much we have spoken Run!